1: Welcome
2: to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with one of my longtime friends and someone that many of you know and love, Jack Kornfield. Jack and I first met in the 1970s after we had both returned from living in the East. Jack trained as a Buddhist monk in the monasteries of Thailand, India, and Burma. He has taught meditation internationally. Since 1974, I remember his first retreat and is one of the key teachers to introduce Buddhist mindfulness practice to the West. He is one of the co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society in Barre, Massachusetts, along with myself and Joseph Goldstein, and then went on to co-found the Spirit Rock Center in Woodacre, California. Jack's books have been translated into 20 languages and sold more than a million copies. He holds a PhD in clinical psychology and as a grandfather, husband, and longtime activist, welcome back to the Meta Hour, Jack.
0: It's a pleasure to join you, Sharon, always.
2: Yes, 1974. I remember yeah. it well. It
0: was a big year.
2: <laughs> Doesn't it? So yeah, it was a big year. Sometimes it seems like yesterday, and most of the time it seems like a thousand years ago.
0: Yeah, it's back there with the dinosaurs and the pyramids in some way. but. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's some way in which the DNA of where we were back in those days and the excitement of bringing Dharma alive in the West, which we didn't even know we could do. We just came back and people said, Hey, would you tell us what happened to you? And then it, it, there was a tremendous kind of field of excitement of people realizing that there were these amazing, deep and, and straightforward practices. And, Things that could open your heart and open your mind, and people just wanted them. And somehow we were, it's sort of like getting early stock options at Google or something. (laughs) We were, we were like in the, we got karma stock
3: options, I must say.
2: But it was still great. (laughs) I taught at Google once and they introduced me as an OG, and I didn't know what that meant. Uh, I said, What does that mean? And they said, Original Gangster. So, yeah. I guess we're we're in that club. Really well, somebody okay. asked me yesterday about the vision that we held in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Did we ever <laughs> imagine what would happen? And I said, no, not me. Anyway, uh, you know, it was really step by step, and it was sort of a mystery, actually. You know, like opening up, say IMS, which came first, and you know, I remember the reason we had a car was because somebody's dad gave him a car. You know, <laughs> one of our friends right. and kind of like that
0: yeah and somebody else sold their car because we ran out of money for rice and beans for all (laughs) All the meditators okay i'll sell the car here's the money it was you know it just it, it was bootstraps but it was also extremely exciting and delicious to have a community of people who were so um turned on is the right word with the possibility of um changing their their lives their hearts and minds changing the world too you know and a lot of it was very personal everybody had read be here now or Mm -hmm. heard about these things and now there was some genuine way to do it
2: and you know what i what i say to people um about that time is no you know there wasn't like a, a sense of yeah we're gonna you know have a worldwide movement or anything like that at all but um, there was, of course, tremendous gratitude each of us held for our own experiences and what they had given for us. And and we had no particular models, you know? It was like every other place I knew of um, that was offering teaching was generally referring back to a singular Asian teacher or monastery. or uh, And, you know, we remember those discussions, like, should we have Buddhas? Should we have Buddhist statues out? And,
0: Should um, we have chairs or cushions? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the coolest thing, which I say to people, is that our teachers, and we have these amazing teachers who came from Burma and Thailand and India from Ajahn Chah and, and Mahasi Saito and Deepa Mama Nindra and so forth. They came, they taught with us, and then they went home and they it, said, okay, you do it your way. <laughs> like, whoa, well, what do we do? But it was it was tremendously liberating because we didn't have to make it into little Thailand or little India or something. We actually could look around and try to feel what these beautiful teachings would land like in our own culture.
2: Now there's a story I tell about you sometimes. Um, so tell me if it's accurate <laughs> as you just go by. Um, well, I don't know if it's complimentary, but keep going. <laughs> no, no, it's it's really more about Ajahn Chah. Um, where uh, I don't know if it was just before you were coming back, you said something to Ajahn Chah about you weren't sure about people's um, feeling about the meditation practice because they would associate them then perhaps the practices with Buddhism and uh, they weren't really you know familiar or or maybe at ease with Buddhism. And he said, "Well, call it Christianity." It's a correct
0: story. I mean, right. he he was. And this is a beautiful thing about a number of the great the greatest masters. Um, he it's It's like that image of the the lotus flower in the pond when when you pour water on the lotus, it just rolls off. It, nothing clings to it. Um, and I'll, I'll tell a story that uh, very much related to this, there was, after a after time after I left, there were so many Westerners that heard about it and started come that they opened this Western monastery, nearby the main one. Um, and one of the people who came to practice there was a, a, a Western woman who became a nun for five years, very good at languages, so she could speak the local Lao language and people loved her. And after five years, she disappeared. Um, and they didn't know why, she, didn't, she just said, I'm going. And then a year later, she came back, and she had um, had an evangelical experience and was a born-again Christian, and came back to the monastery with very good language and was trying to convert the villagers and the people in the monastery to, to the way of Jesus. Um, needless to say, it was disturbing to some people, especially to villagers who'd been supporting her and all these monks and nuns as if they were you know, true Buddhists. Um, And they got quite upset. And so a bunch of them walked the eight miles over through the forest to the main monastery and told Ajahn Chah this woman is back and she's saying, you know, that Christianity is the right way and we're disturbed. We thought we built you all a Buddhist temple for these Westerners and, you know, but she keeps telling us that we're, we're doing the wrong thing and whatever. And they waited for a bit to see what Ajahn Chah would say. He sat quietly and he smiled. He said, well, maybe she's right. And the minute he did it, it just kind of diffused everybody's attachment to it. And he just laughed. You know, he wouldn't enter that battle. He just let her be the way that she was. And after a while, she left and they carried on. And she carried on in whatever way she wanted to.
2: That's well, a beautiful example of not feeling you own the truth in some way, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. So where are you right now, actually, since we're. I am uh, in Venice, part of Los Angeles. Know, you're in LA, yeah.
0: I'm in LA at uh, my beloved Trudy's house. We kind uh-huh. of went back and forth during this pandemic. Uh-huh. Some months we're in near Spirit Rock and then coming down here near Inside LA or place and. We go back and forth
3: a bit, although we can't go to those places. We just we're in the neighborhood. It's where our
0: (laughs) height.
2: That's funny. Um, I mean, it's not really funny, but I'm in Barry, Massachusetts, which is uh, the longest time I've spent here in a very long time. It's very interesting.
0: We used to live there. Remember
2: to live there here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I've only been to downtown Barry one time. I just stayed on this property. It's interesting. So I am on your uh, email list, or maybe several of them, and um, I see how much you are uh, urging people to vote, and uh, you're involved in certain um, elements of that. I watched you and Tara Brock on Win Wisconsin's thing, which I thought was fantastic. And, um, and I've just recently gotten an email from you. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that, what uh, has drawn you to that and maybe even the connection to your, your meditation practice in life. With, with pleasure,
0: you know, and in a way speaking with you because You also have been so much of an activist in these in these years, um, as I have. The whole notion that somehow meditation is a kind of passive activity um, is, you know, or mindfulness is 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 uh, is just wrong from the very beginning. If you look at the Buddhist teachings of the Eightfold Path. Half the steps of the Eightfold Path are contemplative steps, mindfulness and concentration, so forth. Half of them are steps of relationship and engagement, um, you know, having charitable thoughts to the people around you and setting your intention and then right speech and right action, right livelihood. Um, they go together and mindfulness in its um, old, the old language in Pali or Sanskrit and so forth is often this paired word of sati for uh, sati and sampajanya, which in a loose translation means mindful presence in which you see the way things are deeply um, and then mindful or suitable response like breathing in and breathing out and from the very beginning the buddha you know he sat between warring armies as a kind of peace activist at certain points or the more modern monks who've gone out to wrap their robes around the greatest trees in the forest and make them abbots and and do a ritual that will prevent the loggers from cutting down the forest. All of those things. So the whole notion that um, somehow spiritual practice is a withdrawal from the world um, is now getting, I think it's now getting shifted, I hope, in our imagination to realize that. We can't separate and that we tend ourselves and in doing so, we quiet the mind and open the heart. Um, and then that gives us the ability, since we move through the world anyway, to move through the world and bring benefit to it. So now all that is sort of a little background. We are in a really difficult time, as everybody knows these multiple crises of the pandemic and the um, the racial injustice and the economic crisis and the climate crisis and so we need both we need ways to steady our hearts to quiet the mind and kind of give ourselves roots and strength and so we can live through this in a wise way and then we need to get up um, and tend and mend the world and and plant the seeds or water them of things that matter. And that's an equally big part of Buddhist teachings is what seeds are you planting and watering and how are you creating a future? And for our future right now, one of the most important and effective things that we can do um, is to uh, participate in the, in the democratic process of voting. And yes, it's messy, and yes, there's voter suppression, and yes, there's partisanship on all sides and so forth. Um, But I believe that this is an enormously important thing. There's so much polarization and, you know, many things that are being done in our name as a government of us that are actually causing harm to lots of people. So we've started together with a group of 150 Buddhist teachers and an equal number of well-known yoga teachers, uh, something called um, Buddhist and Yogis United. Although if you go online to look, and I hope you do, it's Yogins, Y-O-G-I-N-S, United. That's the Sanskrit plural, yoginsunited.com. And there you'll find Buddhist and Yogins United. And there's an invitation on it, and we're going to be pumping out information and, and support for all the community members, not just the teachers, but those who meditate, and those who do yoga, and those who know people who meditate, to do three really important things. First is to register to vote and make sure everyone that you know in your pod, and your family, and that you're close to, make sure everyone is registered. The second, which is on there, is a way to join um, some of the best nonpartisan groups to help get out the vote. Um, and this is uh, if you click on it, there are ways to send texts, to email people, to call people, to do things that support all these many people who may not be voting otherwise and whose voices we need. We need everybody's voices um, in this time. And as a collective, we can hope and maybe even pray that that collective wisdom will lead us in a, in a healthy way. And then the third is, of course, for those who are able to um, to become poll workers and actually to engage in that. and all three of these seem like some of the most powerful, simple and strategic things that we as individuals and as a community of people who care about ourselves and the world because they're not separate about our about life itself can do. so that's a, a little ad for it and I, mm-hmm. if you do it, whoever listening I mean please do it um, and tell other people and pass it along and make it really come alive.
2: That's fantastic. I mean, I've known, of course, through the years how much you've worked. Maybe I don't even know the extent of it actually, you know, you've worked with gang members or, you know, people um, who we don't ordinarily think of as having access to the teachings. And it it takes a, a lot of intentionality to, uh, be a part of those communities, and um, and I'm wondering if you get uh, different feedback from people about voting. You know, I do. Um, I mean, I don't feel like I nearly have your accomplishments in in uh, trying to correct social ills. Actually, honestly, but um, you know, I remember I was teaching once a small group somewhere, and I have a great, great passion for voting personally. I feel that it's um, so commensurate with the Buddhist teaching about the innate dignity of everyone. Yes. And I think it is the the living articulation of that, that everybody should have a voice, everyone has worth, uh, everyone should be able to express themselves in, in that way. And I think it's like a sacred act And that for it to be violated or denied for people is like actually painful for me. But you know, I you know there are times I see a lot of people um, confuse political with partisan. And I remember I was teaching somewhere, some small group somewhere, and somebody said to me, I don't even know what I said that that brought it up, but she said, "Well, you know, the, the Buddha said that all politics was dirty." And I thought, really? You know, like I'm no scholar, but I don't remember that from those endless you know lectures in India. Yeah. Um, uh, so the, there's a certain association, I think, with um, politics, or it's like the electoral element. It's one thing to be working with gang members, and it's another thing to really ask people to participate in an election. At least that's been my experience. Well, this is this is the kind of
0: um, idealistic and and, and sadly. Um, uh, a mistaken view of spirituality, that as you become spiritual, you can move away from the dirtiness of the world. And whether it's politics or money, you know, or sexuality, or these things that are actually part of being a human being in a community. um, Mm -hmm. Ooh, I don't have to touch those. I can go into my cave or I can meditate or something. So there's that side of thinking that voting and politics is dirty. And and then there's, you know, there's some sense somehow that there's some way to live that's ideal apart from the world. But it's not what the, not the freedom that the Buddha taught. Um, and I think that in some way, um, you know, that impulse to step away because human life is difficult, it's understandable. Um, but it doesn't bring liberation it brings a kind of temporary respite but then you have to you know come down the mountain or you have to come out from the cave because um this human incarnation you know is one that's collective it's never really separate and you carry it with you even if you're in your you know in solitude and it turns out that you know in the in the buddhist teaching that the third of the great refuges refuge in the Buddha and awakening refuge in Dharma and teachings and practices that awaken the heart and refuge in community that we need each other. I mean, that's the very simplest way to put it. I mean, you said it so beautifully about voting and the inherent dignity to see each other that way. But even, you know, in the simplest language, we need one another and we need the goodness and the courage and the strength of each person. Um, and voting is one of the elements that allows us to put our voices together for a collective wisdom, wisdom for something that matters. And yes, there have been, in, in many cases, millions of people who've been disenfranchised or, or discouraged from voting in different ways. Uh, now is the time to stand up. Now is the time for us to say, no, we want to become part of choosing a future and choosing a healthy future. And voting is the is the way is the democratic way. And from the very beginning in the Buddhist teachings, you know, the decisions that were made were not made just on high, but in the community that were made in council, when the elders would come together in council and then others around them, and often by deep listening process um, there's this sense uh, that collectively we can take care of and bring our compassionate heart and our courage to the very problems that you know define our human life and ennoble it and make it
3: make it better and care for one another make it more beautiful
2: I think there are a lot of people right now uh, in the US who are feeling really, uh, I don't know if it's helplessness or hopelessness, but some combination. Um, And especially about the state of politics and, and they don't feel they can have any kind of positive impact. What do you say to those people?
0: First of all, I'm sympathetic to it because my experience in these last months and people reaching out and doing lots of teaching, not to speak of just being housebound myself, and at times getting a little stir crazy, or as Trudy might have pointed out, occasionally just a tiny bit grumpy, or whatever, <laughs> um, just tiny, right? But, but so I'm sympathetic to the feelings of that, um, and I think it's what happens in any very difficult passage. I love what um, Valerie Carr, who's a <laughs> activist, in it you know, seek and so forth. She talks about us being in a birth process and then the last part of the transition part where the midwife says two different kind of instructions, um, breathe and push. And so sometimes we need to stop and quiet ourselves and breathe and really center ourselves. And then sometimes we actually have to have to, uh, I don't know what was. Um, bend the ar- the moral arc of the universe, reach up and help bend it toward justice. Um, and such, um, you know, being discouraged, you know, and despondent and all those things are, are emotions. But the truth is that the world is being born over and over and over again. And if you look at, you know, the Nobel Prize that was won by Lehman Gaboie and uh, Ellen Sirleaf in Liberia, and they said, Liberia used to be known for its child soldiers, and now it's known for its women leaders. Mm. That if that could be turned around, or Mahagosananda, our friend and teacher and so forth, the Gandhi of Cambodia, who did all these amazing things after the Cambodian genocide, Holocaust, he um, he went to the U.S. Congress to speak because he was part of a group that, Some of the others in that group got the Nobel Prize for trying to um, end landmines. And he'd just seen so many children whose, you know, legs had been blown off or things. Um, And he went to the Congress and talked about them voting. But he said, really, there's two votes or two things you need to do. Yes, to join this world treaty. He said, but the other is to go to the root. And that is to remove the landmines in the heart. And so I see us um, breathing in and breathing out, or in Zen they say there are only two things, you sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is, Mm. that we quiet ourselves in some way and tend our hearts so that we can get over the fear and the discouragement and so forth, and carry, and I'll talk about it later, maybe a little, carry a, a sense of possibility and joy. Um, But then we get up after we've centered and quiet ourselves like Gandhi did one day every week. He just took quiet in the middle of taking apart the British Empire. Mm -hmm. And get up um, after we've removed the landmines in our heart and found a way to steady us. Um, And we realize that um, we're born anew at breakfast every day and that we can plant and tend seeds and create an entire new possibility. There's a hundred billion new red blood cells made by your body every 24 hours. The world wants to renew itself and we can put ourselves on the side of it. And there've been times that are difficult and dark before, and we've been through them as human beings, epidemics and typhoons and you know earthquakes and all kinds of terrible things. And we know how to do this. This is actually the time
3: for us to use the inner strength and then to bring our voice out. Well, you know, not um,
2: uh, some people have said, you know, in the past, it's not true in every year, and I don't think it's true this year, um, that they don't see great differences between the candidates and that uh, there's just, just just marginal differences. I was talking to somebody like that uh, several years ago, and, and I said, well, you know, lots of people live inside those margins. You know, like your life may not be affected in any way by uh, an increase in minimum wage, but there are plenty of people. And you may feel that's not enough, or it's not sufficient action to choose one candidate over another, but there's so many people. It's almost like we live in these little silos and, and we don't even understand the impact of of policy on, on lots of different people.
0: Yes, that's very, very much true. And it's become more evident with the pandemic, the level of um, economic disparity, who has access to healthcare, the huge amount of more people who are dying by percent in the black community or in the Latino community, mm-hmm. you know, or in communities of poverty. Um, and it's not just access to health care, it's access to good education and jobs. And these are things that we can actually make a difference about. Um, and yes, there's activist things we can do. And I go out with my Black Lives Matter sign on the street and I, you know, stand up for things and so forth. But there is a, a, a deep responsibility, both through voting and through Somehow educating ourselves that we actually can, and, and um, that not only can we make a difference, but this is the time, you know, to do so, um, and that there is distinction, that there is difference, and you know, when you have a compass or you set a path, um, and then you put the compass down, and you think, oh, "I'm going to go that direction."
3: Um, If your compass is off by just a tiny bit, a few degrees, um,
0: you end up in an entirely different place.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take
0: much. So for us, we need a um, politic where people care for everyone, for, the, as you said, the nobility and dignity and the worth of everyone. And that has not been true in this culture in many ways. And now is the time to make a difference with that. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a grim duty any more than I say meditation isn't supposed to be a grim duty. If it's, you know, all right, I I jog and I do my exercise and I have a diet and I meditate, like sick. if it's not if it doesn't bring some joy to you as well, um, then you need to do it in a different way. And I see the same in this. You know, the great activist Molly Ivan said at one point. So keep on fighting for freedom and justice, beloved, but don't forget to have fun doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, I look at that book of the Dalai Lama and Tutu, the book of joy, and they've suffered as much as any leaders in the world in many ways, the loss of Tibet and tremendous suffering, the entire Tibetan culture or apartheid and what, what happened in South Africa. And as the Dalai Lama said, they've taken so much, why should I let them take my joy? And there's some way in which we actually can discover, just like somebody who first learns to garden, wow, the plants want to grow, all I have to do is water them a bit and, and, and the sun, they start to grow, that we can discover that we can participate and that the world through our collective participation, that we sleep better because of it, that we're on the... We're we're on a team, we're united in some way with others who are caring for all of us together in our huge family that we have. I have this passage that I've been reading recently by Margaret Wheatley, who's a systems Mm -hmm. thinker and an activist that I'd love to read. Yeah, please. Because it has some elements of what we're talking about. She writes, warriors for the human spirit. So she's using that warrior metaphor, which maybe at this time is needed in some way. Are awake human beings who have chosen not to flee, they abide. So that's the first thing that we say, all right, you know, these are rough seas. We are going to stay on and stay steady. They serves, serve as beacons of an ancient story that tells of the goodness the renewal, the generosity, and the creativity of humanity. You can identify them by their cheerfulness. You will know them by their compassion. When asked how they do it, they will tell you about discipline, dedication, and the necessity of community. And there's so much in there. I gave a whole talk on it recently, the necessity of community, The the kind of dedication, but also about cheerfulness in Mm. some way. You know, people start to feel bad. Well, oh my God, I have safety, I have sanctuary, I have privilege and all these people who don't. And what do I do? I feel guilty. I feel ashamed that, you know, I have more money or I have access or this or that. And I think of it differently. I like to say... You've been given an assignment. You've been given this privilege. You know, you didn't earn it necessarily. And with it, you now have an assignment to use that privilege as a bodhisattva, as someone committed to the well-being of all. To you, Your assignment is to take that privilege and make something beautiful out of it for your life and for the life of others. Well,
2: that's lovely. You know, I did a um, workshop the other day Online, of course, um, for these uh, activists in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that morning and and based on conversations with um, the person who'd invited me, I, I thought, who do they remind me of? And I realized they reminded me of caregivers. Uh, And, you know, it's a funny word, caregivers. I keep wanting a better word, but, you know, the work I've done with international humanitarian aid workers, the work I've done with these days medical personnel or ambulance drivers or whatever. And and it's some of the same issue, you know, like tremendous empathy, unlike perhaps, you know, the pictures we see, uh, the image, not, I don't mean graphic pictures necessarily, but um, the illustrations we see in this world of people without. And have much empathy and the coldness and the cruelty it's not that you know they have enormous empathy but they are so tired and burnt out and and there's something else and maybe it's the access to joy or remembering the joy or maybe it's a combination of different things that seems really necessary because it's a long haul to try to make change long haul yeah it, it is you know when I, I and I don't see the
0: kind of coldness that you describe and cruelty. So yes, of course, the news picks it up and any cruel act is magnified by the media. I mean, when I was, went to do some peace work in Palestine and Israel um, and, you know, met with different groups and so forth. And then I discovered, oh my gosh, you know, there's the former combatants for peace and there's the bereaved mothers and the Sulkita that brings teenagers together from across the palestinian and israeli divide and the you know um i met with all these groups and there's hundreds of groups of people who are creating respect and connection but but one person throwing a molotov cocktail or shooting someone mm-hmm. that's what gets you know the headline in the new york times or whatever it is when in fact even as we talk in this time there are um A billion acts of kindness of people putting scrambled eggs or rice gruel on the table for their child or, Mm -hmm. you know, stopping so that someone who's walking slowly can get across the street. All right. And the coldness and cruelty, I mostly only see when people have been really traumatized or desperate and they just close in on themselves and they get into you know, fight, flight, or free. But anyway, you know, you work so much. You yourself have been um, a wild activist, and whether it's caregivers or, you know, the places that you've been going where there have been, um, you know, gun violence and mass shootings mm-hmm. and all the kinds of things that you've mm-hmm. done. Um, I had this woman that I worked with who I love, actually. She's really great. She's a psychologist, and for a time, her job. Was to work with um, torture survivors. Um, she was a psychologist working for part of the UN, um, and so you can imagine how difficult that was. Yeah, and she she would come to retreat, and she would say that um, yes, she started to get burned out because um, it was such a long haul. But also, when she got quiet, she'd see all the images of the stories that people had told her, and it was just was really hard to carry and i said well you're not supposed to carry it and she said what do you mean and i said well describe your office to me and here's where you sit and here's where your people come in and so forth i said all right behind where you sit i want you to put a big shelf and on the shelf i want you to put a statue of the buddha and one of kuan yin the goddess of infinite compassion and one of mother mary and maybe a picture of jesus and while you're at it, put Kali on there. You're going to need her. And Durga, put some of the Haitian gods because you have these people who survived torture in Haiti. Um, and, and, you know, a page about the mercy of Allah, Allah written in Arabic and the uh, Star of David. And, you know, put uh, Shiva and, you know, Vishnu on there and because you need backup, basically. And when you come into your office, light a candle or make a bow or put an orange or an apple there um, and say, all right, I will hear these things, but it's for you to carry and not me. And then when people walk in your office, they'll see who's behind you. They'll realize mm. that it's not just you because we're not supposed to carry this in our own bodies. Um, and so w- when I talk about working with uh, burnout again to activists and groups, there are the beautiful practices that I'm sure you teach of grounding yourself into the earth with roots or sweeping through the body and releasing the tension back to be held by Mother Earth or making an altar of whatever you believe in. If you're a scientist and you want to put Marie Curie and you know, or you want to put Clara Barton on there or started the Red Cross and so forth. And each day, you know, before you start or between your, your sessions or your responses, You go and you wash your hands and face and make a kind of cleansing and say, I offer this up to be held by whoever you value. Um, And you learn these ways to release not just from your body, but your heart and mind to say, this isn't mine to carry, it's mine to witness, compassionately to acknowledge, and then to place in the lap of Kuan Yin, the, the goddess of compassion, or Mother Mary. And we need ritual. Um, it's not just a job we're doing, you know. If you're a first responder, it's not just a job. You're actually you are in in some odd way or some powerful way, you're also a shaman, you're a healer, you're someone who's got the medicine in your fashion and you're tending the world. Um, and therefore you need the rituals that help you hold this not as an individual because it's not meant to be held that way, but to be someone like the midwife who tends the birth of things. And sometimes births are messy and dangerous. And even, you know, sometimes people will die in birth. Um, but you become instead that space that can hold it and allow, you know, the, so the mystery to hold this because, as the Ojibwe say, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And we don't know what's going to happen now. We can do our part and tend the wounded and feed the hungry and, you know, tend our own hearts. It's not given to us to control the outcome, but we do get to choose the seeds that we water and we do get to. You know, focus on the value and the rightness and the truth of what we do moment to moment and that is an enormous gift that is what we're given
2: That's beautiful thank you you know I was just thinking about ritual earlier because I actually have loved the ritual of voting. I vote here It's the only place I have ever voted in Barry mm. and it's very old-fashioned you know you get a paper ballot and a little pencil and you you go into the booth first you know there there's somebody uh who calls out your name and address <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah. then you know and then you go to the booth with your pencil and your ballot and then you hand it at the other end to someone else and they call out your name and address and uh it's very like low tech <laughs> and, and uh very communal oriented and i've always loved it and and you know I, this year, um, here, I got an application for uh, basically an absentee ballot, you know, a mail-in ballot. And and uh, I filled it out just in case, you know, like that seemed like the prudent thing to do in terms of the virus. Um, but then I thought, well, if that's what I end up doing, I have to establish another ritual because mm. um, it's such a different kind of act, you know, to... I mean, it may be the wise thing to do, and I hope many people consider it depending on their circumstance. And, um, you know, but uh, I really did think oh, I, I need another ritual. I need something.
0: Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. I can see you creating a, a lovely ritual, lighting a candle and, you know, calling in whatever is right. Yeah. And, 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 um, and, and it's really meaningful. Voting is a, is a, you know, powerful spiritual act to to raise your voice in right speech and right action in some beautiful way. And it's an, it's an act of renewal to say we're going to set the direction again. Um, and these are my values. And it's not about perfection, you know. As you said, you can look at the candidates and say, "Well, this one's not perfect, and that one's not perfect." And but perfection only exists in fantasy. (laughs) Does I mean I remember um, I was quite upset. You know, when you when you're very new, and at least when I was in meditation, and there I was a new monk at Ajahn Chah's, and they said he was enlightened, whatever that means. And I would peer at him, and I'd see him scratch himself or something. I wonder if he's scratching. Picking at his toes mindfully, or is that all, you know, I had my idea, Um, and then he would say one thing, and a while later, he'd say something different, kind of contradict that, or he'd be, you know, he'd be really generous and gracious with some people, and then he'd be very stern with others, or whatever, and not so consistent, and finally, I looked at him, and I said, you know, I've been watching, paying attention, And um, maybe it's me, but sometimes you don't seem so enlightened to me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You contradict yourself and you say this and then you said that. I reminded him what he did. And and of course, he was really amused. He thought that was great because people wouldn't say that to a teacher in Asia. You know, we Mm -hmm. upstart Mm -hmm. Westerners. He laughed and he said, it's a good thing that I don't uh, look like the Buddha to you. And I kind of was inside. Said, "Yeah, why not?" <laughs> and he said, "Because um, if I did, you'd think that you can find the Buddha outside yourself, mm-hmm. and he's not out here, you know." And so we have all these ideals. When actually, um, what we have is Oscar Wilde called it the tainted glory of humanity—that it's messy. And it's got suffering and immense compassion, you know, and loss and amazing creativity and rebirth. And, and that we get to participate in that, but that with a wise, you know, perspective and a good heart, that's really the blessing. Um, that we, we actually can become the Buddha in ourselves that sees it all, praise and blame and gain and loss, and then act in ways that bring beauty into the world and not be afraid to do so. I like this verse from my poet friend and great activist, Dina Metzger, where she writes, give me everything mangled and bruised,
3: and I will make a light of it to make you weep. And we will have rain, and we will begin again. Mm.
2: Like the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, yeah. So I have one more question and then I want you to please. Repeat, the, repeat the website perhaps for us and then I'll lead yep. us into practice. But so when you look at a political leader, going back to what you said earlier, whose actions seem um, to be causing a lot of harm to a lot of people, do you actually think, well, this is a damaged, traumatized person? And um basically, may they get well, you know? Is is it a a kind of loving-kindness assessment that happens there? And
0: does it help Uh, you to do that? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think of your story when the Dalai Lama came to visit us at IMS in Barrie in 1979 or whatever Mm it was. You were on crutches because you Mm -hmm. fell Mm -hmm. and hurt yourself. And you were in the back of this group of like thirty or forty people by the door, and the first thing he did when he came up was see you and make a beeline. Are you okay? Mm-hmm. You know, and it was such a beautiful example of somebody who is the embodiment of compassion. Um, so you're asking me if that's how I do it. <laughs> well,
2: I mean, partly because no. I'm asking because I was I was in uh, partly because you know it was fascinating when you said that and. Partly because I was in this church in Berkeley doing this presentation once um a couple of years ago. So still within this administration and it was uh an um and a Lama who had just flown in from Tibet that day and West Nisker and Oh we were uh, on that together, you Were you I, there? I can't remember. We were on that uh, same panel, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. okay. So there were so many people on that stage and and that Man asked this question where he said, basically, you know, I know when I do things that are really harmful, I'm coming from a place of pain. But I look at some of these leaders and they don't seem to be in pain. They seem pretty self-satisfied. Yeah. You know, they seem really content and, and kind of puffed up. And and there was just like a lot of silence from our end, you know. And, and finally, yeah. I said... I'm with you, you know i I look at them and I think, well, if they can only like fray a little around the edges, you know then i could I could get a sense of the suffering which must be there, but in fact, because that's not the case i I consider my own experience of myself as as kind of the laboratory, and that I know that I am coming from a place of pain when I am causing pain, and i I just think it must be true, and that compassion um Doesn't weaken one. It doesn't mean you agree, you know, or you're you're going to give in. It's it's just not being embroiled in that kind of hatred, which is uh, just so damaging.
3: Yeah.
0: So, um, unlike the Dalai Lama, who immediately walked over to you on crutches, you know, and that's just like the the Buddha of compassion embodied in some way. I have, on occasion, I must admit had some un-Buddhist thoughts towards some of our <laughs> leaders and some leaders in the world. So, of course, I notice that my mind does that. Um, and then I also think about our beloved and dear friend Ramdas,
3: mm-hmm. with
0: that huge altar in his house, and his temple that had, you know, a hundred different sacred images of Mother Mary and, you know, his guru, neem Karoli Baba, and Kuan Yin, and... And Ananda Mayama and Mother Teresa and on and on and on and on and in the middle for a while it was Dick Cheney was on there and then he got tr- transplanted and it was it was Donald <laughs> Trump and 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 Ram Dass said this is part of my practice mm-hmm. of love and um, it's not so much how I see them because I can look at for example I did watch the um, the long interview that was done with president trump um not not so long ago on axion or whatever that
3: Mm
0: -hmm. site was um, and he didn't look very happy to me Mm -hmm. he really looked like he was suffering some but whether whether they're satisfied and or suffering or walled off or whatever that's actually not my business um my business is to put them on my inner altar as best as i can And with metta, to say, may you be free from hatred, Mm -hmm. may you be free from fear, may you be free from confusion and ignorance. Um, You know, those I could wish for anybody, you know, Mm -hmm. for Bashar al al Assad or whatever dictator you name in the world, may you be free from hatred. And these are kind of the classic metta phrases in a certain, mm-hmm, way.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and they speak across the centuries and millennia to um, a, a bigger truth than however anybody's manifesting.
2: And I think you and I have to come back on the air and have a whole conversation about metta, about loving kindness and compassion as superpowers, rather than as... Uh, just weaknesses which is how so many people think of them that would be great.
0: Yes, yeah it would be a it would be a pleasure. There's all kinds of great st- stories to tell and yeah, it would be really fun.
2: Okay, so could you repeat that website for us and then maybe so, lead us into yes,
0: practice? Yes, please. It is called Yogans, Y-O-G-I-N-S, yoginsunited.com. dot com. And if you go on yoginsunited.com, underneath it will say Buddhists and Yogans United. Um, and then there will be three important steps that you can do to help register people to vote, you know, to get out the vote more broadly, collectively and nationwide, and to help at the polls. And each one of them all together are really important um, and powerful and empowering um, and beautiful just as you said, that ritual of going into Barry to boat, which I've done in the past as well, this can become a kind of a beautiful ritual for you to help. And it means a lot. So yoginsunited.com.
3: Fabulous. And do you want to lead us into practice?
0: I'm happy to do that. Yes. So for all of you out there in radio land, so to speak, in pod land, Whatever it is, um, let's take five or eight minutes or something to practice, and we'll do we'll sort of meld together a few practices. So as you're listening, if you can, if you're not driving or you know bicycling or something, let your eyes close gently. and feel your feet on the floor or your buttocks on the cushion or the chair wherever you are. Let
3: yourself be grounded and take a couple of deeper breaths. And in fact, as you sit grounded,
0: you can even imagine that you have roots that go down from your body
3: like a great tree deep into the earth. that gives you a sense of steadiness and presence. And as you sit quietly now, feel how your body is breathing itself, the breath coming in and out, and how it does it all the time, automatically and beautifully, exchanging the air with
0: all the other beings around that are breathing with you, the air that dusted the Rocky Mountains and before that the tops of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa. Now come into
3: your lungs, shared by all of us. And as you feel your body breathing, relax and simply say thank you. You know, thank you for breathing with the world and feel the relaxation as you say that. and expand your attention to feel the sense of your body,
0: the whole field of sensations, the energy field and the warm and cool and tingling and vibrating and all of that hard and soft that make up the field of body sensations. You feel this human body alive now. And as you feel it, you notice that you've been carrying a lot from the difficulties of these days, (sighs) weights in the shoulder and the jaw and the
3: gut and the arms and all these things, and feel what your body's carrying. and wrap around it your arms and heart of compassion to hold all that you've been through with such kindness. And then say to your body, thank you. Thank you for caring so much. Thank you for trying so hard to help me. And notice as you bring in the
0: appreciation and compassion and thank you, how the body softens
3: with this loving awareness that is mindfulness. And now bring the same mindful, loving awareness to the heart, to
0: your heart. And notice all that there is, the longing and the love, the visioning and the care, but also the worry and fear, the heaviness of the times, the grief, the anger, the pain. The heart carries so much. And with mindful, loving awareness, you can notice all that the heart
3: has been carrying, very kindly. And breathing gently, wrap the heart with compassion. The same way you would
0: hold a child who was frightened or upset in difficulty,
3: wrap the heart with tender compassion. And then say, thank you. Thank you for caring so much. Thank you for trying to protect me. I'm okay for now. Thank you for trying to
0: protect me. I'm okay for now. Just here and now, I'm okay. And you can remind your body, I'm okay for now, just where I am. Thank you for caring so much. And in the same way, you can become aware of your mind and all the storms of energies of the mind. The thoughts, the plans, the imaginings, the worries, the memories, the trying to figure it out. The mind is so busy. And
3: you feel that field of mind busyness. And you wrap it with compassion and say, oh yes. This is the mind. holding it with loving awareness and compassion. Thank you. Thank you for working so hard. Thank you for trying to protect me and care for me. I'm okay for now. And now there's a remarkable thing to notice. With your loving awareness, you've
0: been aware of your body and breath, of your heart and your mind, but these are not who you are. Who you are is this field of loving awareness itself.
3: Mindful, loving awareness, consciousness. Relax, rest, and be the witness the loving awareness, the witnessing of all
0: that arises and passes. And you sit as a Buddha, as an
3: awakened one, noticing the rising and passing of breath and body, of feelings and thoughts. And you are vast and open and peaceful. And in this piece, you discover that there's both openness
0: and love. For as the great masters say, wisdom sees I am nothing, and love sees I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. You are the openness of awareness, and you are the field of love that connects and holds all things. Loving awareness is who you really are, and let your metta then, your love, shine out and fill the space of awareness that holds not just your body and breath, not just your heart and mind, but as if you could link hands and arms and hearts with hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of beings.
3: Breathe together with them. We are life. We are loving awareness taking birth.
0: And who we really are is this timeless awareness. You become the beacon of love and the steady stillness of the Buddhist awakened mind
3: and heart. Rest in it. It is your true home. On keeping the spirit, you can let your eyes open gently and stay
0: attentive to and open in a field of compassion
3: and loving awareness as you move through the world.
2: Well, thank you for this beautiful, beautiful meditation. And thank you so much for taking the time to be in conversation with me today. To learn more about Jack's offerings, you can visit his website at www.jackcornfield.com. Thank you, uh, everyone, for listening. This has been the Real Change Series on the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com.